Welcome to Harmony Christian Church Podcast. For more information about us, visit HarmonyChurchFamily.org. So I want to start here in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. This is out of the Passion Translation. It says, And his fullness fills you, even though you were once like corpses, dead in your sins and offenses. It wasn't that long ago that you lived in the religion lived in the religion, customs, and values of this world, obeying the dark ruler of the earthly realm who fills the atmosphere with his authority and works diligently in the hearts of those who are disobedient to the truth of God. The corruption that was in us from birth was expressed through the deeds and the desires of our self-life. We live by whatever natural cravings and thoughts our minds dictated, living as rebellious children, subject to God's wrath like everyone else. But God still loved us with such great love. Listen, last week I talked about wonder. One of the greatest wonders of God is the fact that despite our sin and rebellion, he still loved us and he still pursued us. That in the middle of our sin, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But God still loved us with such great love. He is so rich in compassion and mercy. Even when we were dead and doomed in our many sins, he united us into the very life of Christ and saved us by his wonderful grace. He raised us up with Christ, the exalted one, and we ascended with him into the glorious perfection and authority of the heavenly realm. For we are now co-seated as one with Christ. Throughout the coming ages, we will be the invisible or the visible display of the infinite, limitless riches of his grace and kindness, which was showered upon us in Jesus Christ. For it was only through this wonderful grace that we believed in him. Nothing we did, nothing we did could ever earn this salvation. For it was the gracious gift from God that brought us to Christ. So no one will ever be able to boast for salvation is never a reward for good works or human striving. By grace, we have been saved. What I want to talk to you about this morning, what I want to share with you this morning is, is honestly, I've honestly struggled with exactly where to go because I feel like the Lord has so just been pouring this revelation into me this week. So what I, what I want to really start off sharing with you this morning is this wonder, this idea that God loved us and rescued us and pursued us even while we were yet sinners. I hope that it never gets old to us that he saved us while we were yet sinners. That this, these verses in, in Ephesians chapter two never get old to us. And listen, I believe that there is a reason why God chose to save us. There is a reason his love for us was so great that even in our rebellion and sin, he still chose to come and save us. And I don't believe it was because we're just some creature that he made that he just decided to rescue. I believe the reason that he 
decided to save us was because we are image bearers of God himself. We have been made in his image. We are literally the sons and daughters of God. See, I think sometimes, sometimes I think we, we get this half truth of that we are sinners saved by grace. How many of you have heard that expression said before? We are sinners saved by grace. And I believe that is only half truth. That it, we didn't begin as sinners saved by grace. We actually began as image bearers. We started off this whole thing as sons and daughters of God. That we were made in his image. And then we fell into sin. And the great story of the gospel is the fact not only that he saved us as sinners, but that he restored us as image bearers. That we restored us as sons and as daughters. See, the reason I believe there's more to it than the fact that God just loved his creation. I believe he saved us because we are sons and daughters. Let me ask you something, moms and dads. If your child falls into sin, do you love them any less? They could fall into some, some crazy stuff, right? They can get into drugs, alcohol. They can get into all kinds of just crazy stuff. And it does not change your love for that child. And I believe, and listen, and that's with our own sinful nature and desires. And we still love our kids that much. How much more? Does the perfect father, Yahweh, God, love his sons and daughters and do anything to rescue them? That while we were yet sinners, why did he save us in the midst of our sins? Because sin could not separate us from the love of the father. Because we are made in his image as sons and daughters. I've gone back and looked at my notes from this year that I've been the lead pastor. And I think just about every one of my messages has been somewhere along the lines about being sons and daughters. And I, I honestly, it's not because I don't know anything else about the Bible, although some of that might be true. <laughs> I believe the Lord has so is so wanting to identify us and get that inside of us that we are more than just sinners saved by grace. We are literally his sons and his daughters. And that's why his love is so extravagant for us. We are his sons and his daughters. Amen. Man, and listen, I'm probably going to preach that till I die. So you better just get used to it. We are sons and daughters of God. There's a saying, there's a saying that I've heard many very well-meaning pastors say, and I've said it myself, but I'm starting to learn that the saying I think is a little bit off. And that the saying is, it goes something like this. It's the idea is, is that God is so holy and righteous that he cannot even look upon sin. Many of you have heard that kind of expression or that idea talked about before. I know you have because I've talked about that before. 
But the more I'm learning about the nature and the character of God, the more I'm realizing that I don't believe that that sentence is correct. Think about, think how many, you remember I've taught on this before about the first mentioned principle, right? The first mentioned principle, when you're studying theology, when you're studying scripture, there's a principle called the first mentioned principle, which says that the first time something is mentioned in the Bible, that that idea, that that characteristic is carried on through the rest of scripture. What is the first thing that God does when he encounters sin in the garden? When Adam and Eve fall, when Adam and Eve sin and disobey in the garden, what is God's initial reaction to their sin? Adam, where are you? He walks into the garden looking for Adam, searching him out. See, I don't believe God turns his back and can't look at sin. I believe God pursues the person in sin so he can pull them out of it and redeem them. We see this, listen, it's, it's constantly throughout scripture. The, uh, the Israelites, how many times did they mess it up, right? Constantly messing it up, constantly falling into rebellion, and constantly the Lord searched them out to redeem them and sent them somebody to bring them back into the fold. David, the, one of the most messed up guys in the Bible, he, he commits what is pretty much considered uh, as rape with Bathsheba. She didn't have a choice. He committed adultery. And he murdered her husband. He's a man after God's own heart. God didn't turn away from David. He pursued David and brought him back into the fold. You see that? And listen, that's, that's just a picture of the Old Testament. Then you get over to the New Testament. And Jesus shows up on the scene and it says stuff like this, that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Anything that I do or say, I don't do without hearing it first from the Father. That Jesus, Bill Johnson would say, Jesus is perfect theology. That, that when you look at Jesus, you are seeing God. You are seeing who God is and how God acts when you are looking at the person of Jesus. And then you look, so you under, your understanding is that Jesus is perfect theology. And you see Jesus do things like they bring a prostitute to him. And they want Jesus to condemn the prostitute. And what does Jesus do? He stoops down in the dirt. He gets into a position where he can make eye contact with the woman who was just caught in adultery and sin. He began to pursue the one caught in sin. He didn't turn his back on her. He didn't say, oh, you know, I feel like sometimes, and maybe this is just me, we've had this image of God uh, when it comes to sin, like, like God is Superman and sin is like this kryptonite. Like if it's in the room, then all of a sudden he's like, you know, melting or something, you know, or like the wicked witch of the West, you throw water on her and she's melting, you know, like it's just this image that God can't just be around sin. But we see time and time again in scripture where he doesn't abandon us in our sin, but rather he pursues us in it. He pursues us. Zacchaeus is up in a tree. Zacchaeus, a well-known crook and criminal, 
Jesus sees him in the tree and invites himself over to Zacchaeus's house, which I think is a pretty neat trick, right? I thought about using it myself. So see who wants me over for dinner tonight, right? He invites himself over to Zacchaeus's house. Jesus so entwines himself with people who are recognized as sinners that the Pharisees begin questioning his legitimacy as a, as a godly man because he's spending so much time with these people deemed as sinful people. The ultimate example, Jesus, who we all believe is fully God, came down and dwelt and made himself like us to be with us in the midst of us. I want to challenge our thinking that God is not a, like somehow afraid of sin or can't be around sin, but rather he pursues us even in the middle of our sin and our mess ups and our failures and, and the times where we don't get it right. He doesn't turn his back on us. He actually pursues us in the middle of it. He actually comes after us in the middle of it. Sin did not cause God to stop loving his children any more than you stop loving your kids because of their sin. He was the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world, meaning he had a plan to deal with your sin before it ever even occurred. Wow. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. God does not have a weakness being around sin. God so doesn't have a weakness being around sin that Jesus, who we all agree is full of God, came into the world and set up shop in the midst of people still drowning in their sin. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. It's Luke chapter 10. God has never hidden his eyes from sin. He's dealt with it head on so that he can save that which was lost. And when I ask... when I want to ask you this question. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. So what was lost? What was lost? What did he come to seek and to save? And I, I believe that is a very broad question with a very broad answer. I believe there's many things that we could go into. And this is where I'm struggling because the guys who I was talking with this morning know that there's, there's been so much within this whole study that I've been in, just that the Lord has been expounding to me that I don't feel totally ready to release yet. Um, but one of the things I believe that the God came to seek and to save, which was lost, was what was lost. It was the fact that we were image bearers that was lost. One of the things that was lost is our image bearing status, right? So it's Romans 5, chapter 18, or Romans 5, uh, verse 18 and 19. So I'm not going to get all, well, it's up there, so I'll go ahead and read it. It says, in other words, just as uh, condemnation came upon all people through one transgression, so through one righteous act of Jesus, sac Jesus' sacrifice, the perfect righteousness that makes us right with God and leads us to a victorious life now available to all. The next verse. One man's disobedience opened the door for all humanity to become sinners. So also one man's obedience opened the door for many to be made perfectly right with God and acceptable to him. So when Adam sinned, 
it, it caused our, our image bearing status to falter because we took on a nature that was not originally ours. We took on a sinful nature. And it, it says uh, in other verses of that chapter, it says that we are all born with that sinful nature because of one man's disobedience, who was Adam. So one of the things that was lost was our image bearing status, our true nature, and was replaced with the nature of Adam, the sinful nature. But it says, but because of one man's obedience, many are made righteous and whole. So what is the one of those things that he came to seek and to save, which was lost? I believe he came to save and restore our status as image bearers, which means this, when we encounter Jesus and accept him and begin to follow him. And, and uh, because of the cross, I believe that the old nature of sin dies. That right now in this moment, though we were born with the nature of sin, you no longer have the nature of sin. It's no longer part of who you are. That your nature has actually been restored. It's Romans 6 that the old man has died and the new man has been reborn. That he has restored your status as image bearers. Which means this. It is no longer in your nature to sin. It goes against your very nature. Does that mean we never sin? Absolutely not. Sometimes we fall and we mess up and we sin and there's grace for that. But the difference is, is it's no longer your nature to do it. Now you choose to do it. Which is why sin as believers, I believe can be, when it, when it talks about in Hebrews, you have re-crucified the Lord of glory or the, something like that. The father of glory. That's why it's so severe is because it's no longer your nature to fall into sin anymore. But now you have been made righteous and holy and perfect. Not, not in some kind of allegorical way or metaphorical way, but actually holy, righteous, and perfect, that you have been restored as an image bearer, as a son and a daughter in actuality. Amen? Amen. All right, I'm going to go there, even though I don't fully know how to do it. I've been learning something this week that has been phenomenal, has been just completely revolutionizing the way I think. And listen, my, my goal this morning and really what it, what it has been recently, my goal is that, that we would just realize who we are because I believe if we can get down inside of us, the fact that we actually are sons and daughters of God, what will that do to our confidence? What will that do in our walk with the father and in the world around us? When we actually can walk in the confidence that we are literally sons and daughters of God, bearing his image into the world. If we can get that, I believe it'll absolutely revolutionize everything. So let me tell you a little bit about something I've been learning. I've been learning about this, this Greek word called perichoresis. Perichoresis. 
And the word itself is actually not found in the Bible anywhere. The word is, uh, so it's not necessarily a biblical word, but it is a theological word. And what I mean by that is that the early church fathers uh, used this word to describe the relationship and the inner workings of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what the word perichoresis means is, uh, is, is it, it's actually called the circle dance or the dance of love. And what it was, was it was a Greek dance that uh, they would perform or that they would, they would do at weddings or celebration ceremonies. And it was usually with three people. Imagine that. Sometimes there would be more than three, but it was no less than three people that did the dance. And the dance... Uh, what would the dance look like is it was these three people would, would dance in and out of each other. And it was a very intricate, very detailed dance. Um, and they would dance in and out of each other. And eventually they would go so fast in the dance and speed up that it looked like they were, they were one being. They were one person because they were performing the dance with such accuracy and such precision and so, so intertwined with one another that it looked like one person. That they were three distinctly individual people acting and performing and moving as one individual or one unit together. Does that sound familiar? It's the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit that, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And I'm going to go to John chapter 17. And this, and, and this is hopefully, it's been blowing my mind. So hopefully it'll blow your mind as well. Amen. John chapter 17. It's uh, after Luke and uh, before Acts, if you're looking for it. 17 is after 16 and before 18. What's that? You're welcome. Oh, it's up there? Okay. That's right. We live in 2020. Nobody brings the Bible anymore because it's up there, right? So John chapter 18, 17, sorry. John chapter 17, we're looking at, uh, what verse am I in? John, I'm doing so good this morning. John chapter 17, verse 21, starting in verse 21. So this, let me give you a little context. This is Jesus praying with his disciples before he goes to the garden of Gethsemane. So he's with his disciples. Jesus full well knows what's coming. He full well knows what's about to happen. And this is the prayer that, um, that he begins to pray. I wish, I, I wish we had time that I could just sit and read John chapter 14 all the way uh, through John chapter 17, but I don't think you guys want me to do that. So go home and do that yourself. But let's, let's just look at John chapter 21. It says, I pray for them, or John chapter 17, verse 21. I pray for them all to be joined together as one, even as you and I, Father, are joined together as one, Right? We're seeing perichoresis here, that as you and I, Father, are joined together as one, that we are distinctly different individuals, but we are totally and wholly one, right? That you and I are one. And I believe what we can all accept the fact that God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit have such a relationship that it is as though they are one, right? That's easy for us to think. But let's read on and see what it says in the next verses. 
I pray for them all to be joined together as one, even as you and I, Father, are joined together as one. I pray for them to become one with us. Catch that. I pray for them to become one with us so that the world will recognize that you sent me. For the very glory you have given to me, I have given to them so that they will be joined together as one and experience the, jo- experience the same unity that we enjoy. You live fully in me. Now I live fully in them so that they will experience perfect unity and the world will be convinced that you have sent me for they will see you love each one of them with the same passionate love you have for me. That perichoresis, the father, the son, the Holy Spirit are entwined together. Their relationship is so entwined. Their love for each other is so entwined that is as they move as one. But then Jesus makes this statement. He makes this statement way more times than just in John chapter 17. And he says that just as I am in you, you are in me. We are in them and they are in us. Do you see what happens here? Because of the cross, we have been invited into the circle dance. We have been invited in to the intimacy that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit share with one another. And we have been invited in to the circle dance. He is in us and we are in him. And we are in perfect unity with the Father. The cross was about so much more than getting us into heaven. The cross was about so much more than just getting us into heaven and getting us off this sinful planet. That we were created from the beginning to share union with the Father, with Yahweh God himself. And that union is not only available to us when we pass away from this world and eventually make our way into the pearly gates. But that union is available to us right now in this very moment. You have been invited into the circle dance. Oh, Jesus. That sin could not keep him away from you. What shall separate us from the love of God? Nothing. There's nothing that can separate you from the love of God because you are his son and his daughter. And you are welcomed into that union where they're so moving in intimacy that they're like one with each other. He is in you and you are in him. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. I pray that this message, I pray that this idea sparks something in your personal life and it completely revolutionizes the way that we pray and the way that we worship and the way that we approach God, that he is not distant from you. He has never left you. He has never forsaken you. It's just like we talked about earlier in the worship service today, that there is nothing you can do that will cause him 
to abandon you and to give up on you. That he is constantly inviting you to be like him. To be in his image and in his likeness. And to share the unity that the father and son share together with them. So this morning, more than it is a message, it's an invitation to step in to perichoresis. To step in to unity with the Father and Son. I pray that today your relationship with the Father would be completely revolutionized. That you don't approach the Father as some sinner begging for mercy. But that you approach the Father full of boldness because you have been made in his image. And that you belong there. That you actually belong in the presence of Jesus. You actually belong in the presence of the Father in the throne room. That you're not there by mistake. You're not there just because uh, he felt bad for you. But that you are actually worthy to be in the throne room with the Father. Because Jesus has restored your identity as the image bearer. And that you actually have the authority to have union with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He is in you. And you are in him. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Father, I just, I, I lift up each and every person in this room this morning. God, I just pray that this revelation... God was so just entwined with their spirits that it would become a daily, uh, that it would become part of their very life, the fabric of their life, Lord. God, that it would become the way that they even think about themselves. God, I, I'm afraid that, that many times we have such a low self-esteem of ourselves because we know the mistakes that we've made. But God, I pray that our, our self-esteem, the way we think about ourselves, would be dramatically changed today and healed and made right because we are image bearers of the Father. God, I pray that, that, that because of that knowledge that we'd be able to walk in such confidence and in such authority that the world would see what you have made us and they would, they would be drawn to the Father through us. Thank you, Jesus. Father, I pray that today we would all step into perichoresis. God, that I heard I heard a I heard a preacher say this recently that we often we often attribute things to God, God's character that if we were to attribute that same characteristic to another human being, we would think they're jerks. One of those things, for instance, is the, this idea that God created us because he needed somebody to worship him. That God somehow needed us to clap for him. And listen, worship, God, God doesn't need our worship. Worship comes out of us because we see the glory of the Lord. God created us for unity. God created us because he wanted relationship with us. He wanted perichoresis. If we were to 
God, God is not so arrogant that he needs our worship. God created us because he wanted to dwell with us and be with us. So God, I pray that this morning that we would be able to enter into that fellowship. Give us a grace to enter into the circle dance. To join hand in hand with you, Father. And have the intimacy with you that you share with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. Revolutionize our walk with you today, Jesus. Revolutionize the way we think even about ourselves this morning. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Amen. I hate to, to end on this really heavy note this morning, but I think it's okay if we do. Because I don't want the end of this service to be the end of what we talked about this morning. We may be ending the service, but what we've talked about, I want to continue on throughout the rest of your day, your week. And I want you to begin. I want you to listen. I'll give you some homework. I want you to read John chapter 14 all the way through John chapter 17. All the way, John chapter 14 through 17 is really the lead up to when Jesus, before Jesus goes to the garden of Gethsemane and, um, and then eventually to the cross. But read that and, and you can read all the way John 14 through all the way John chapter 17. You can read and, and see for yourself this idea of perichoresis, of him coming into us and us coming into him, us being grafted in to the vine, that he is the vine and we are the branches and we have been grafted in to the vine and that I'm in the father, that he is in me and that we are in him. So I want you to go home and I want you to read that. And I really want you to begin praying and begin, uh, begin your devotion with this idea that you are not coming, you're not coming to the father as a sinner, but you're coming to the Father as a son and a daughter, entering into union with the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Amen? Amen. Awesome. My voice made it barely. It's hanging on, but it's there. So if I don't talk to you after service, that's why. All right. Well, Jesus, we love you so much. God, I thank you that there's going to be some testimonies this next Sunday of us encountering your presence in a way we never have before. Of us walking with a confidence that we never have walked in before because of our realization of our identity as sons and daughters. We love you so much, Jesus. We honor you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.